back home, uh, there's a mountain in New Hampshire. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of it. It's called Mount Monadnock. It's not a very big mountain. In fact, it's, it's a rather small mountain, and it just barely meets the criteria of actually of what's, necess- of what's needed to be called a mountain. It's very, not a very high mountain at all. But what's unique about this mountain is that it is the second most climbed mountain uh, in the United States, Mount Monadnock, after Mount Fuji in Japan. Uh, it's about two hours from Boston, five hours from New York City, and a lot of people like to go to the mountain and just get away. And It's not a very high mountain, so it takes about two hours to climb to get to the summit. But once you get to the summit, it is unbelievable, the view, particularly in the fall. You can, no matter where you look on this mountain, you can look out and you can see a large part of New England. Uh, and in the fall, with the foliage and the, it's, the leaves, I mean, all the different colors, it's, it's a fascinating view. And I was able to go up there once, and it just, it was just beautiful. And I said to myself, this is God's revelation in nature. Just a beautiful, beautiful sight. Uh, just God revealing himself in the beauty of the things that he has created. And as I thought of that experience, this was several years ago, um, this expression, uh, mountaintop experience, entered my mind. Uh, it originated, this expression, the mountaintop experience, uh, from the Bible because of the dealings God had with his people on various mountaintops. The phrase has come to mean a moment of transcendence or an epiphany, a revelation. And in particular, an experience of significant revelation given by God. Contrary to the revelation that I experienced on the top of Mount Monadnock, which was a revelation of God seen in nature... Moses' experience of God's revelation on the top of Mount Sinai was much more profound. For he, Moses, would experience God in a way that had never been experienced before by any person up to that point in history. The account of God's revelation to Moses is seen in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, all the way to Exodus 4.18. It is the first time that Moses goes on top of this mountain and has this experience with God. The entire section of Scripture is all about God's revelation making himself known to Moses. And what's unique about this experience is that God is going to reveal himself to Moses in a way that he had never revealed himself to anybody before. He, no one has ever seen God quite like the way God is going to or Moses is going to experience God's revelation. This has never happened before. So when we look at this passage, you know, we live at a time where we have a lot more revelation given to us as Christians than Moses did, right? Moses did not have the same kind of revelation we do as Christians because we come on the other side of the cross. But Moses did not have that kind of revelation, that experience. So when we look at the text, I want us to kind of forget about the revelation that we know concerning the person and work of Jesus. Because when Moses enters this experience, this mountaintop experience, he doesn't have that. And so we're going to learn some things about God on this mountaintop experience with Moses. 
concerning God's revelation and making himself known to Moses. Okay? So what do we learn here about the revelation of God on Mount Sinai as we journey with Moses on Mount Sinai? First, God's revelation of himself begins with God coming down into our world after observing the suffering of his people. God has never come down to the world before. Never. All he has done was made himself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in ways that were personal. But Moses is going to get a whole different level of experience. And the first thing we see about God when he reveals himself to Moses is that he is going to come down into our world after observing the suffering of his people. Verses 23 to 25. Now remember, Moses had failed in his first attempt to save the Israelites in Egypt. And now he's in Midian. Now what happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Notice what God does in these verses. The people cry out to him. In other words, they're praying to him. And God does four things. He heard their groaning. He remembered their covenant. He looked upon the children of Israel. And he acknowledged them. Four things that he does. Now the word I want to focus on is the term acknowledged. In the New King James Version, the term is acknowledged. I think the best translation of the last word in this verse is no. Okay? In the ESV translation, it would say this. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God knew. And you say, what does that mean, that God knew? It sounds to be, or it seems to be a rather strange way to end the passage. And God knew. What does that mean, God knew? You can see the word to know in the term acknowledged. What is he saying here? There's an Old Testament scholar by the name of J.A. Moyer. He says this. In the Old Testament, knowing someone implied actively entering into an intimate relationship with them, just as in another setting, the Hebrew says that Abram or Adam knew his wife. In other words, he, Adam, entered into the deepest, most personal intimacy of mutual knowledge two human beings can experience. Similarly, when Psalm 1-6 says, God knows the way of the righteous, it means he registers how they are and then maintains an intimate and knowledgeable relationship with them as they go through life. His knowledge of how we are placed, how we feel, What it is like to be us is not a remote or merely objective acquaintance with the facts. It involves a coming down, a knowing companionship, indeed a transforming intention. This is made apparent in Exodus 3, 7, and 8 when God says, I know about their suffering sorrows, so I have come down. 
God sees his people hurting and they're suffering. And right away, God remembers the covenant, which means he's going to take action. This isn't simply meaning that he forgot about what he had promised in the past. It's a term that says God's about to act. And he's going to act in such a way that it's intimate with his creation. So he comes down. The very first thing that God does on this mountaintop experience is he comes from heaven, comes down. The very first thing that God is doing, he's revealing something about himself in his interaction with people through his relationship with Moses here. He comes from heaven down. But how does he come down? That's point number two. God's revelation of himself comes as a light into the world in order to draw and attract people to himself. Verses 1 to 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock into the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is another name for Mount Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And so he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. That is, the bush wasn't being destroyed or being eaten up. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Isn't that interesting? Moses takes Jethro's flock and he takes them far away to find pasture. As he does so, something catches his eye. There's this fire that's burning, but it's not being consumed. Fire is light. That's what it is. And it catches his eye. And because he sees this light, this fire, it draws him to the light, to the fire. That's the reason why the Lord comes down from heaven to earth in a flame of fire. He's drawing Moses to himself. It was intentional. Like a moth to a flame, that's what God was doing as he comes down as light, drawing his servant to himself. Like a moth to a flame. And I asked myself this question. I said, you know, moth to a flame. I said, why are bugs and insects drawn to light? Why are they? Every time, you know, I come to the church on the side of the building once in a while at night, and i got to be careful when I open the door because if I open the door, all those bugs that are buzzing around the light go right inside, right? You ever had that experience? Today's the 4th of July. There's going to be people outside. They're going to be having cookouts till the sun goes down. They're going to have lights out there, and all the bugs are going to be flying around the lights, right? Do you ever ask yourself why they do that? Why do they do that? One of the reasons that bugs are attracted to light is because it is used for navigation. Many scientists believe that specific insects are guided by the sun when they fly during the day and the moon and the stars when they fly at night. They're able to do this at night by keeping the moon's reflected light at a constant angle. When the light is kept at a constant angle, the insects can maintain a steady flight path and a straight line or course. When bugs are flying, they look for a straight line forward. And if the light is not blocked, it, is you, it usually means there is an undisturbed path without many obstacles. But because there are so many sources of artificial light, 
like our lamps, for example, the insects become disoriented by trying to keep light at a constant angle, which often results in fluttering aimlessly around the artificial lights of our homes. That's what happens. That is exactly what happens to human beings spiritually. We humans, like insects, are navigating our lives or trying to navigate our lives on this earth. We are meant to be drawn on a straight course to the one true light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. But like insects, many people are drawn to the artificial lights, the false lights, false religions of this world, the cults and isms, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, Mormonism, Islam. And as a result, the people end up spiritually disoriented, fluttering aimlessly around the bulb of Satan's lies. It's exactly what happens. That will not be a popular message to give today in our society. It would be rejected because of what I just said. Tomorrow, it could be dangerous. This should not be a surprise to us that there are artificial lights. 2 Corinthians 11, 13, 15 says, For such are false apostles, they're deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, artificial. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. False teachers saying things that are not true. False lights distracting people from the one true light who has descended upon Mount Sinai at the beginning to Moses to draw a straight path course to himself. That's what God is doing on Mount Sinai. Comes down as light in the burning bush to draw people to himself. John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Thirdly, God's revelation of himself ought to fill us with reverence and fear of his holiness. Verses 4 to 6. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of, Abraham, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Moses' response when he sees the light is to be an abject fear and reverence. And he demonstrates this by taking the sandals off his feet and he hit his face. Well, what does it mean when he took his sandals off his feet? This was a sign of reverence that was, a, that was common in the ancient Near East. Presumably, taking off shoes was done when entering into the presence of a superior person, which usually would occur formally when one was at the superior person's house, palace, or tent. Thus, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb is here implicitly identified as Yahweh's place because his presence was there. Thus, the very ground is holy. People talk about Jesus sometimes as the light of the world, very casually. He's my buddy. He's my... People can be chummy in their language with how they talk about Jesus, forgetting who he actually is sitting on the throne. A revelation of God 
when we truly experience God and he reveals himself to us, the response should be like Moses, reverence. And it's fearful. I don't know anywhere in the scripture where someone receives a revelation of God, they didn't fall down on their knees and were, you know, <laughs> you know you're not going to be chummy with them. He's our friend, yes. We have a personal relationship with him, yes. But we ought to have a proper respect and reverence for Almighty God. And it's very easy to lose that. I mean, people, young people may not have reverence and respect for their elders, let alone the one true God. But that's important to have. Fourthly, God's revelation of his will. God's revelation of his will to free his people from their oppression has its goal, the worship and service of God. Notice he's no longer talking about God's person. Now he's talking about what God's will is. Now the revelation is his will. God's will to free his people from their oppression has as its goal the worship and service of Almighty God. Verses 7 to 12. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, that is, to an occupied land. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In other words, I want them to be free. But Moses said to God, but well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so he said, I, that is the I am, will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, when they are free, you shall serve God on this mountain. You shall serve or worship God on this mountain. Here we see the reason why God wants his people to be free. When he freed the Israelites from oppression, he didn't just free them so they would no longer be oppressed. He freed them for the purpose of worshiping and serving him on the mountain. That's the reason why. Freedom's purpose is so that God's people can worship him and serve him. That's why it is clearly evident that God is revealing the importance of freedom is so that his people can worship him without any interference and without any limitations. That's, God's, that's what God is willing and revealing on Mount Sinai. I want my people to be free, to worship that's the goal. Fifthly, those who reject God's revealed will by not allowing his people to freely worship and serve him open themselves up to receive God's judgment. Verses 13 to 22. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and they say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What should I say to them? 
And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. What's happening here is that God here desires to reveal who he is to the children of Israel. He was revealing who he is to Moses, but now he's saying to Moses, I want you to take what I'm revealing to you and share it to the children of Israel. That's what he's doing. Next, he says in verse 18, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the, to the land of the Canaanites to the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice. What's God doing here? God here is revealing his will to save his people to the elders of Israel. He's revealing who he is to the children of Israel and his plan is to, to reveal his will to save his people to the elders of Israel. Keep going. Next, we see, continuing in verse 18, the Lord says to Moses, And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness. Why? That we may sacrifice, worship the Lord our God. Here, God is saying to Moses and is revealing his desire to reveal his will to the king of Egypt that his people should be free, should be set free in order to worship him. That's what he's telling, that's what he wants Moses to do. Go to Pharaoh, tell the king of Egypt that my will is God for my people to be set free so that they may worship me. God says, how's Pharaoh going to respond, Moses? This is how he's going to respond, Moses. He says, in verse 19, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So what will I do? I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go, that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." By introducing the term plunder, which is a term associated with gathering up the spoils after battle, God brought to the people attention through Moses the concept that they would be involved in a holy war against the Egyptians. All of this is saying this. God is saying, if you do not let my people go and don't do as I want done so that they can worship me, I'm going to judge the nation of Egypt. That's exactly what the plagues were. They were judgment on Egypt because King Pharaoh would not allow the people to freely worship God. 
and judgment came. It is a warning for any, any culture, any society, any government that tries to limit or curtail the freedom of God's people to worship and serve him, open themselves up for the judgment of Almighty God. That is exactly what happened in Egypt. Pharaoh did not and would not allow God's people to freely express themselves in worship and brought upon judgment upon themselves. That's still valid today. Any nation opens, them, opens themselves up for judgment if they refuse to allow people, God's people, to worship and to serve him. God forbid our country and its leaders ever decide to try to limit the church in its purposes and functions in this world by refraining what they do, cutting their funding, keep them from assembling to worship. God's not going to be pleased with that. And any nation that tries to do that, open themselves up for God and divine judgment. Just ask Pharaoh. Interesting message on the day we celebrate our independence. I didn't plan it. Sixth, God's revelation of himself will often be accompanied by signs that confirm and legitimize his servant's authority and message in times of widespread unbelief. Verses 1 to 9 of chapter 4. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe or trust me or listen or obey my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Nah, he didn't come to you. So the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He says, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and he caught it. And it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again, and he drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even those two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on dry land. You say, what's the purpose of all of that? The Lord is just telling Moses, the person whom he has appointed to be the deliverer of God's people from Egypt, he says, if they don't believe your testimony... I'm going to give you, I'm going to operate supernatural signs to reinforce that you are my servant and will reinforce the message that you're carrying. That's what he's doing. God's revelation of himself will often be accompanied by signs that confirm and legitimize his servant's authority and message in times of widespread unbelief. And of course, we see this later on in the revelation of Jesus Christ, God's deliverer of all mankind, who comes into this world doing signs and wonders. In John's gospel, the seven signs. What was the first sign? Changing water into wine. 
Moses changes the water to blood. Always changing miraculous signs to share, to testify that he is who he is. When Jesus went into the temple to cleanse the temple, what did the religious leaders say? By what authority do you do these things? Jesus had authority. That's what we see here. Those, when God reveals himself, he will often uh, accompany the, the individual who he uses will be uh, authenticated by the signs and wonders that God performs. And lastly, number seven, those who obey God's revealed will for their lives will be blessed. Those who obey God's revealed will for their lives will be blessed. Verses 10 to 18. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Well, who has made man's mouth? Or who made the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God, and you shall take his rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in, please. Go in peace. Go in peace. Here Moses is reluctant to do the will of God. He has been the whole time, he's been reluctant to do the will of God. Five times he keeps hesitating and not willing to obey God's call on his life. And God's got to the point where he gets angry. He says, look, I'll give you help. I'll give you your brother as encouragement. Finally, he's willing to go and do what God wants him to do. Finally, Moses is willing to do this. And so what he does, he goes, interestingly, he goes to his father-in-law, Jethro, and he asks for permission. Why does he do that? He's not asking for permission. He's asking for a blessing. When Jethro says, go in peace, he was blessing Moses. What Moses sought was a blessing, a happy departure rather than a forced one. As an employee of Jethro, he would have needed a release from his job, something he would prefer to accomplish amicably. As a son-in-law, he would desire the blessing of his wife's father, both because he was taking Zipporah, his wife, with him, and because he owed decades of hospitality to this Midianite priest. When he goes and it appears to be asking for permission, he wants a blessing. And it is interesting, the blessing only came after he was willing to obey God's call on his life, which tells me that when we are willing to obey God's revealed will for our lives, you will receive a blessing by God. So Moses did. 
even after all of the times he's been hesitant to walk with God and to do his will, when he finally does so, he receives the blessing. Obedience to God's revealed will precedes the blessing of God. That is what takes place on the mountain. And of course, when we think of everything that took place on the mountain, it was clearly a precursor of God's revelation through the person of Jesus Christ, who also came down from heaven and is called the light of the world. And his purpose of coming down is to draw people to himself. The true light, not an artificial light. And his message was that he was the only the begotten son of God to save people from their sin if they would just believe in him. And God validated the message that he gave through signs and wonders, just like he did with Moses. Moses was getting a revelation of God in a new way that had never been done before. From our perspective, we can look back at what happened on the mountaintop experience with Moses and say how God was preparing the arrival of the great deliverer, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. That's what was going on. And Jesus was validated with his signs and his miracles. And if we obey and trust him, we will be, we will be blessed by him. On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When supper had ended, he also took the cup and he blessed it. And after he had given thanks, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is shed for you so that your sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. For those who put their trust in the light of the world, Jesus Christ. For those of you who are here for the first time, we at Countryside Covenant Church practice open communion. You don't have to be a member here. You just come and you're a believer in Jesus. You're more than welcome to participate in the celebration of the Lord's elements. I will come around and pass out the elements. I would just simply ask that you hold on to both so that we can partake of them together. body of Christ, which is broken for you and for me. Let us partake together. The blood of Christ, which is shed for you so that your sins and mine may be forgiven. Let us drink together.
Would you please pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the gift of revelation, the gift of making yourself known to us so that we can know who you are. We thank you, Lord, for mountaintop experiences where we see you and get to know you in a more intimate way every day. We thank you for the experience that Moses had on the mountain and how you revealed yourself to him and the lessons that we can learn about you through that experience for it clearly foreshadowed you, Lord Jesus, coming down into this world as light to attract us to yourself by great signs and wonders to induce us to believe in you for eternal life where we will have the greatest gift that anyone can ever have and that's being in a relationship with you. Lord, we ask that you would continue to draw us closer to you. We have a relationship with you, but we want to know you better. We want to know you more. And the way that happens is when you reveal yourself to us in your word, in your nature, in the world that you created. Lord, we just ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Be near to us so that we will be the kind of people that you want us to be and, and reflect the light that is inherently in you. Just as the moon reflects the light of the sun. Another example of your creation demonstrating truth about you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in this land. May they continue to be the case where we can worship you and serve you and do what we're doing unhindered by any obstacle or force. Help us to do your work faithfully, diligently, for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Of our final song, God Moves. experience and have a mountaintop 
experience this week. I pray that God will reveal himself to you in a way that you've never seen before. You'd be drawn to him like light. Be comforted, strengthened in your faith and in your walk with Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will have a blessed 4th of July uh, celebration today, keeping in mind that freedom isn't free. And God's will is for you to be free so you may worship and glorify him. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Now go in peace. Amen.